0: Grab your Bibles and open to Psalm 14 today. It's on page 532 of your pew Bible. Psalm 14, let's stand as we read God's holy word today. As we continue our summer of the Psalms, looking at all these worship psalms that God gave us, we're going to be looking at an interesting one today psalm 14 follow along with me the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt their deeds are vile there is no one who does good the lord looks down on mankind from heaven to see if there are any who understand any who seek god all have turned away all have become corrupt there is no one who does good not even one Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call upon the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation from Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is God's word given to you in your hearing. May you receive it as such. Please have a seat. Back in 1908, the New York Times had a series struggling, wrestling with this question of what is wrong with the world? That was the topic of a whole series they had. What is wrong with the world? Can you imagine if we went out today and polled people coming in and out tops and said, excuse me, what's wrong with the world today? What kind of responses would we get from that? Probably a lot of finger pointing. Probably a lot of, well, the, the Republicans are what's wrong with the world. The Democrats are what's wrong. Congress is what's wrong with the world today, right? They would be pointing fingers, at all, you know, the, the government, social issues, this and that, uh, you know, yesterday I saw on Facebook people say, well, what's wrong is Tanawanda doesn't have a good enough you know, drain system. That's why the, our world's falling apart. You know, we, we're always very good at pointing fingers and knowing exactly what's wrong with the world today. Well, the New York Times decided it was going to poll popular authors, because why not? And they sent out this survey to all the popular authors of the time. And they said, can you tell us what is wrong with the world today? Send us back your answer. And one of the people they sent this survey to was a man called G.K. Chesterton. I don't know if you've ever read his works. He wrote this series of books called The Father Brown Mystery Novels. Has anybody ever read those? Okay, we have a couple. I I had only a vague recollection of this. It's about a Catholic priest... Who in his off time solved crimes. That's what we pastors do. You know, we <laughs> preach on Sunday mornings and then we go, you know, become Hardy Boys and Sherlock Holmes for the rest of the week. So, so he has this whole series called Father Brown, and obviously he's a Catholic man. And so he wrote back his response to this question What's wrong with the world? And out of all the responses the Times got, his was the shortest. In fact, it was only two words. He said, I am. How profound is that? Everybody else is pointing fingers. This is the problem. That's the problem. This guy is the problem. That faction's a problem. And he looks at himself knowing that sin is what's wrong with the world, and sin comes from us, and he says honestly and humbly, I am the problem. The buck stops here. I don't need to point anywhere else. I am what is wrong. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of G.K. Chestertons in the world back then or even today. A lot of people are willing to look at themselves and point at themselves and say, I am what's wrong. Instead, we have what Psalm 14 calls foolishness, the fools of the world, who are willing to point everywhere but themselves, look around and cast off the blame and justify, justify, justify they don't see that the problem comes from within and so we need to read Psalm 14 we need to hold this up as a mirror to ourselves as a stark look at this concept of foolishness because until we see that until it calls us to kind of a coming to Jesus moment which is what my mom would call a coming to Jesus moment until we have that we can't turn from fools to faith and we need this so Psalm 14 leaps right out of the gate. It doesn't, it doesn't spend a love, love, little small chat time. It comes right out of the gate, barreling bluntly at you with the problem of the world. And it's a problem of people that believe in their heart of hearts that either there is no God or that God's of so little consequence that it does not matter what they do. And they call this a fool. Now, we need to clarify the term fool. I don't think we really use the word fool today, but if you ever hear somebody say it, typically it's referred to somebody who's not very smart. They're a fool. What a fool you are. That's not the biblical fool. A biblical fool can be very smart, can be a very intelligent person. So it has nothing to do with your intelligence. Rather, a fool in this context is somebody who has kicked God out of their life, says, get out of my life, so that I can flout an independence from you, that I can live independently from you. That's a fool. A fool is somebody who does not want to have God in their life, wants to live independently from God. And fools can even find themselves very successful. In the book of Job, Job bemoans this fact. He looks at the world even back then, and he says this. He says those fools spend their days in prosperity. They're living the good life. And in peace, they go down to hell. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What profit do we get if we pray to Him? Man, Job Job had their number right away. The fool of Psalm 14 isn't somebody who happens to sin and then later regrets it and repents of it. Rather, it's a person who gladly sins because their life is going pretty good, anyways. So, why should they change? They don't see a need, they don't see an advantage to submitting to God, to bowing down to God, to having Him as their Savior. So, they figure that if their life is going pretty well, then they're already doing the right thing by following their own hearts. Don't we hear this a lot? Follow your hearts, follow your dreams. And in peace, they go down to hell. The foolish person also loses the capacity for shame. I'm sure maybe a lot of you have heard this. Remember for the trivia contest next week. But did you know human beings are the only animals that blush? It's really weird. We really are. You don't find a duck that blushes. You don't find a gorilla that blushes. We, we blush. I blush an awful lot. That's why I've got the beard. (laughs) There are many triggers that cause us to blush. You fall in love, you find, oh, that person makes you blush. But one of the triggers that makes you blush is shame. So if you feel a deep sense of shame, sometimes it can cause your cheeks to redden and you have that flush, that blush that comes up. But did you know you can also train yourself not to blush? Experienced politicians... I'm not pointing fingers at any but there are people, they can train themselves to say the most outrageous things, to say, make bold attacks on their enemies that aren't true, and they won't, they won't blush for a second because they've trained themselves not to feel shame anymore. That's how far fools can go in their lives to drum out any sense of shame. That's how far their moral center has degraded. So at this point, you're looking at Psalm. Psalm 14, verse 1, and you go, What if that's me? What if I'm that fool? How do you know if I'm a foolish person? How do I know when I'm being foolish? Well, to answer that question, I have to ask another question. It's a really simple one. But do you think you're going to be held accountable one day for everything you've done in your life to God? Do you think one day you're going to have to go before God and give an account of your life? If you can answer yes to that, you are not a fool. He's saying, well, there's no God. I don't have to worry about that. Or there's a God, but he doesn't really care what I do. So it's not a big deal. And Psalm 14, verse 1 is talking about you. That's how we differentiate it. But even if we're not foolish, even if we've we've repented, we've come before God, we need to look at that verse and say, that was me. That was me before Jesus came into my life. That was me before he gave me that faith. That was me when I said, there's no God. I'm just going to live the way I want to live. We get a picture of what we still could be if he didn't come down to save us from ourselves. So, okay, we know now the attitude of the foolish, but we have to now look at what's worse, which is how widespread foolishness is in the world. Of course, that's not the narrative you're going to get from almost all social and media outlets. Uh, There's been a narrative that says, our culture will tell you that we are all basically A-OK, and has been telling us this for a long time. In 2018, CNN, and I kid you not, CNN posted an article that said, breaking news flash, people are inherently good and nonviolent. That was an article. Now, I'm not picking on one news outlet over another. I'm just saying this, I, this just happened to come up, and it caught my eye, and I, I sat back in my chair. I read this article. It argued that we all start from a place of moral purity, that as infants, we're pure, we're morally good, and it's only by the most extreme of situations does a person ever possibly turn evil and violent. But for the most of us, we're we're basically... Inherently good. CNN needs to look at its own archives, I think, to to refute this claim because it's packed with stories and statistics about how we are the exact opposite of inherently good and nonviolent. Let's just pull out some brief things. 2020, not too long ago, you kind of remember some things happened last year. 2020 alone. Over 19,000 people in America were shot and killed. In 2020 alone, homicides were up 36% in all major U.S. cities. In 2020 alone, 873,000 cars were stolen. The The amount of domestic violence tripled when the lockdown went into place. We are not inherently good and nonviolent. It's only God's restraining hand on all of our lives, believers and non-believers alike, that keeps us from going much farther than we already do. You know what source I trust far more than CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all the rest? The source I trust is a God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and has the ability to scour and search a person's heart. And here we see in Psalm 14, God going on a fact-finding mission in verse 2. He goes over the entire globe. He has that ability. And he does a search. He does his version of a Google search here. He goes on a fact-finding expedition to see how much inherent goodness exists in the world. And he gives us his report here in verse 3. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not one. That's the report. Foolishness is not a rare phenomenon. It is not a scattered phenomenon. It is the norm of a fallen world. It is everywhere. Every single birth on this planet is a start of a new rebellion against the Lord. Please don't put that on a greeting card and give that to your friends when they have a new kid. Saying, oh, your kid is the start of a new rebellion against God. But it is. That's because of what we Calvinists call something called total depravity. Which means sin has infected us so greatly and so deeply that it touches every part of our life. And that on our own, we would never come to God. We would never choose goodness. We would never choose Him. We would just choose sinfulness and self-centeredness. So the first step to becoming something other than foolish is having the courage to look at yourself like G.K. Chesterton and saying, I am a sinner. The problem starts with me. I is the same as everyone else. I'm not going to look around and say, well, God's going to grave on a curve. We're all basically good. It's to look at yourself and say, how deep, how great, how vast a sinner I am against a holy God. It's a step I think we need to take every day, lest we start to buy into this lie that the world desperately wants us to believe. Well, if you're already feeling uncomfortable as Psalm 14 probing a bit of uh, tenderness here, then brace yourself for verse 4. Because the author here notes that when it comes to the foolish, there's no breaks on the wickedness that they perform. He writes this, he says, they devour My people, as though eating bread, they never call upon the Lord. Talking about persecution of the saints here. Back in January of 2021 here, there's an organization called Open Doors. And its whole purpose is they monitor the amount of Christian persecution in the world. And every January, they put out their annual report. And in this year's annual report, they said, one in eight Christians in the world right now live in a country that persecutes and discriminates against Christians. We don't know what that feels like in America. You can believe that we're under persecution. We're not really, not, consider, not compared to Egypt and a lot of countries in Asia, and especially the worst country in the world right now to live as a Christian is North Korea. If you are a Christian in North Korea, as a one-way ticket to a labor camp or straight to the executioner's block. There is a lot of persecution in the world today. And the government of North Korea, it's run by the same evildoers that Psalm 14 talks about because they are devouring God's people. They are trying, no matter what they can do, to stop the word of the gospel from getting out and stop people's lives from turning to God. And what's really unsettling about verse 4 when you read it is this metaphor here. It's how he talks about how wicked people are so used to devouring God's people. It's like for them, it's like eating bread. You eat bread every day. You don't think about it. It's like for them, just something they do every day. It's so beneath their notice, they don't even notice it anymore. They're just so used to to hurting God's people. This is uncomfortable for us. If we're on the side of God, if we throw our lot in with God, we open ourselves up to persecution and ridicule and being ostracized by our family and our friends. And so that fear alone might prompt us to stay on the good side of the world, but if we do that, we're on the wrong side of God. I would, any day of the week, want to be on the wrong side of the world than to still be an enemy of the Almighty, and I hope you feel the same. Well, it's not long in in Psalm 14 that this psalm starts to turn the tide against the foolish. And by verse 5, it says, that even the most adamant atheists, even the most secular humanists in the world, late at night, when they don't have anybody else to impress, is filled with a bone-deep terror that God is not for them. Even atheists know there is a God, and they know God is not on their side. They know in their heart of hearts that one day they must stand in front of the judgment seat and give an account of their lives of their wickedness. But even as it says here that God is frustrating the foolishness of the world, something more astounding happens between verses 4 and 5. It's subtle, it's quiet, but it's there. And I want you to catch it. Did you notice there's a bit of, a, a bit of an odd, a bit of a contrast here, a bit of a, a conflict within this psalm. In verse 3, it tells us very plainly, it says there's no one who does good. Not even one, right? The Bible says not even one person in the world who does good, who follows God. But in verse 5, there are now righteous people who are communing with God. Well, either the psalmist left the room and somebody came in and finished the psalm, which I don't think happened, or that between verse 4 and 5 is the gospel, is where the gospel comes in. Because something had to change to take these fools who on their own would never turn to righteousness, had no capacity for righteousness. Something came in, something or someone who could come in and pull fools and take them to faith. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. Psalms 14 is subtly hinting, at a Savior who comes down. This great story where God came down to earth as a man to rescue the foolish from themselves. And one by one, angels rejoice today because Jesus takes these godless people and turns them into worshipers. He takes people who are rebels and turns them into praisers. And one by every time that happens, the Bible tells us the angels rejoice and they praise God and they throw a party because one more of the lost, one more of the foolish is now found and will be found forever. Jesus brought these people who were previously frustrated by God. They were against God. God was against them. There was that tension and they were going to lose. And now Jesus pulls them out of that situation and draws them into a loving refuge where they can commune with God where God sees them as His family and loves them. The weird thing is, what terrifies the sinners delights the saved, and it can be the same thing. Think of it this way. If you were in the middle of a bank hostage situation and the SWAT team kicked down the door and came in with all their guns, well, if you're a robber, that sight's going to terrify you. But if you're one of the hostages that's going to delight you beyond all measure. And so it is with God. The fools see God coming. They see their future having to answer to God and having to bear God's wrath forever. And it terrifies them, fills them with dread, Psalm 14 says. But for the saved, for the elect, it is something to be so excited about that one day that we get to see God in his full glory. And that even though the foolish right now, they can attack our bodies, they can attack our reputation, they cannot attack what God is keeping secure, which is our eternal life and our membership in this household. And I think the thought of that can go a very long way to sustaining us through the ups and particularly the downs, the valleys of this world. And finally, in the last verse of Psalm 14, the Old Testament author here pours out a hopeful cry of of shouting for a New Testament salvation. He's looking forward to the New Testament when he says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And then he says, when the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. He knows it's going to happen. He says, in that moment, let Israel rejoice. Let Jacob be glad. I don't know, maybe you know this. Another trivia bit for you. But the Hebrew word for salvation here is Yeshua. And Yeshua was the same name that the angel Gabriel gave to Joseph. He said, I want you to name your child Yeshua, Jesus, salvation. It's the same word. And this child would grow up to be the salvation that would, as Psalm 14 puts it, come down from that mighty hill of God's rule coming to restore his people back into a state of grace and righteousness after living as fools for so long. And the response of all of us who have experienced this salvation, experienced this moment, ain't none of us who have never been fools in our life. We've all been there. But all of us who have been pulled out of that and restored, is to rejoice, as Psalm 14 does, with all our souls to be glad day by day in our hearts because what was so very wrong before is now so very right because our Yeshua has come into our lives, has saved us and redeemed us and called called us as one of His own. Let's praise God today for we are saved from our foolishness. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we don't proclaim Psalm 14 with arrogance, but Lord, rather from a state of humility, knowing that this was us. This was us shouting with our life and our actions that there was no God. We could do whatever we wanted. It didn't matter until we learned the truth, until you planted that seed of faith into our hearts and you called us to you. And For a lot of us, that was painful. That took a lot of, a lot of humbling a lot of wrestling, a lot of screaming matches with you. But Lord, you saw it as worth it. You saw it as worth it when you stretched out your arms and you died on the cross for us. And So Lord, may we never take it for granted that you have called us out of foolishness and into faith. May we never want to go back to that life, Lord, even as it tempts us, even as the world says, yeah, but this is is an okay thing to do. It doesn't matter. Everybody else is doing it doesn't matter if, Lord, you say it's wrong. May we see evil as evil. May we see good as good. May you help to clarify our worldview. Help us to love you even more as we read through Psalm 14 and apply it to our lives today. And all God's people said, Amen.